0: the management briefing seminars which covers all aspects of the auto industry has been held for over half a century and is organized by the center for automotive research on today's show three executives from CAR dive into a number of topics that will be covered at this year's conference and now here's your host john mcelroy
1: i want to thank you all for joining us on autoline this week we want to talk about one of the most important conferences in the automotive industries. It's called the Management Briefing Seminars. It has been going on for more than half a century. And I've got three of the principals in the organization that organizes the Management Briefing Seminars, and that is the Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor. Joining us on today's discussion are Kristen Dejek. She's the vice president who handles labor and economics at the Center for Automotive Research. Richard Wallace is the vice president who handles transportation systems analysis at CAR. And Abe Badhawkar is the director of manufacturing, engineering, and technology. I want to thank all three of you for joining me here today. Thank you, John. Thank
2: you.
1: We got a lot to talk about, and we can talk about just about anything. I want to start with automated vehicles, and I'm going to throw the first uh, question to you, Richard. They've been in the uh, in the news lately. Yeah, they some have horrific accidents. Yeah. So my question to you is: Are we moving too fast on these vehicles?
3: That's a, that's a, that's a really good question, John. And trying not to put my foot in my mouth on the answer, um, we certainly need to be careful on how fast we go, but. I remember back when the Tesla crash happened down in Florida and there was a fatality in in, in the driver and there was a lot of freaking out and navel gazing like we have right now over the Arizona situation. And it took Nitsa months to get its crash report done. And in the end, they found the Teslas with autopilot beta actually had a lower rate of crash involvement when that system was engaged as to when it was not, it was a forty re- percent reduction, so we have to be a little cautious. We will have crashes we will have fatalities with automated vehicles. The goal is to drop back from forty thousand a year in the u s to you know hopefully zero, but let 's say towards twenty thousand as a first step in the in the original uh, initial rollout of, of these vehicles so we have to be a little bit cautious. We do have to be able to test on, on public roads. I think what we need to be able to do is provide a good regulatory environment so the companies involved know where they're going. I think we were headed in that direction, and then suddenly we kind of threw up our hands and we've stalled on the regulatory side, and that worries me. That, that's something that keeps me awake at night.
1: Okay, and when it comes to these automated vehicles, Abe, uh, there's a lot that's going to have to go into manufacturing of them. That's probably going to be different than the way that we manufacture cars now. Yes. Since you're the guy that handles the manufacturing right. side, what do you have to say about
2: that? Uh, there's going to be a lot lot of changes in manufacturing with these automated vehicles. Uh, we already have miles of wiring in the vehicles, and there's the addition of multiple sensors all over the vehicles that are just going to k- keep escalating, and manufacturers are going to have to uh, learn how to adapt to that and be able to— do that as well the design and product design and manufacturing people are going to have to work together even earlier than they've ever have to be able to incorporate all of these sensors and things and yet the vehicles need to look good for people to want to buy them so the marriage between product designers and manufacturing is going to have to be very important as we add all of these sensors and things that are on the outside of the vehicle to be able to handle all of the inputs that uh, we'll need for the automated vehicles. One question I've had somebody ask me, and I couldn't answer
1: it, so I'm going to ask you. Okay. Is here you've got these automated vehicles coming down the assembly line, they're moving on the conveyors, they get to the end of the line, do they drive themselves off into (laughs) the line? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what happens then?
2: That's a good question. I I think that uh, ultimately they will have to be guided, and, of course, there will be some human interaction action with them or uh, Intervention to be able to make sure that the systems work first of all when the vehicles come off the line And there'll be an extensive testing done and could very well be that they go find their own place in the uh, Lot before they go into distribution.
1: I, I got to believe too that uh, getting onto trains and uh, trucks and ultimately maybe for export even ships Maybe they just drive themselves into those positions. Sure, well, but... this I want to watch. <laughs> Could be, but, but yeah. John,
3: you raise an interesting issue: is some of those logistics operations are are quite uh, amenable to automation as well. So you talk about relatively short distance uh, movement of vehicles from factory floor to lot, or from lot to intermodal freight hub. All of that can be done by automated trucks. As well so actually automation in the trucking
1: industry in some ways is perhaps going to be on the leading edge of some of what we're seeing yeah sure uh, Kristen let's get you involved in this discussion here There's a lot going on with trade these days Absolutely. how might this impact what we're talking about in terms of automated vehicles or manufacturing them when it comes to Implications of steel tariffs, maybe even other tariffs that are coming, trade negotiations getting ripped up or maybe being put together. What do what do you see in the landscape right now when it comes to trade?
0: Well, right now everything is open in the trade fronts. Um, we have uh, some trade disagreements with both Canada and Mexico, um, with China, with Europe. Uh, we've had some cases at the WTO. Uh, you know, it is all. Um, Amounts to uh, very protectionist policy for the U.S. That raises prices, and you know higher prices are going to you know ultimately affect consumers. We've had very low. Uh, In inflation in car new car prices since NAFTA was introduced back in 1994 Um, And you know when we're talking about these vehicles, they're going to be even more costly um, If we're doing this with uh, steel or aluminum under protection um, With the electronics content that we largely get from Asia uh, Being under tariff so you know it just makes all of this much more expensive to do
1: of course uh the reason that all this protectionist uh, talk is happening and policies being put in place is presumably to protect jobs. Isn't there a trade-off between protecting jobs, uh, manufacturing ones especially, versus letting anybody come into this market and pricing how they will, maybe even dumping products?
0: It's really difficult to protect jobs through trade agreements, though. I mean, it's, it's one of the least effective uh, tools that we have from a policy perspective, and you know, often come with unintended consequences. And you know, we've seen a lot of that uh, happen over the, over the course of the years. And uh, with the current um, place where we are, uh, you know, we lost a lot of production to other countries because they were more efficient, because it was cheaper to do there and we kept high value work here. We kept high value R&D here. Um, I think those were all natural uh, consequences of globalization and you know, no amount of trade protectionism was going to stop that or put the genie back in the bottle.
1: I'm sure this is going to be a big discussion at the management briefing seminars. But absolutely, what do you actually see happening? Because we've seen the Trump administration make a lot of declarations, steel being a great one, and then start issuing exemptions to all mm-hmm. kinds of countries. So, mm-hmm. where do you think this is going to settle out?
0: I really wish I knew. Um, you know, it's very difficult to predict what this administration is going to do. Um, we do know that the lead um, trade negotiator, the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, has long been. Uh, in favor of protectionism on, on the metals side. Uh, that goes back to the Reagan administration. I found uh, some articles that, that quote him way back then when he was a very low level trade admi- uh, administrator. Um, so this, this has been one of his targets for a long time. So I, I think we're seeing um, that trend carry through. But uh, and as for the other, where will it end? Um, you know, This is a very unpredictable administration.
1: Richard, let's go back to automated vehicles for the moment. You said that we really need regulations. I know when I uh, interviewed the former head of NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, he said it takes six to eight years to write a regulation. Meanwhile, all this autonomous technology is racing forward. Mm -hmm. How do you write regulations to give guidance to the industry where it's going to take the regulators years to get this done and the technology is just moving apace?
3: Well, un- unfortunately, we, we were on course to set sort of what I would call enabling legislation. I don't think we, we need to worry so much about being down in the decimal dust, and I think that's what uh, uh, Administrator Rosekind was probably uh, talking about, was getting down to FMVSS-level specifics, but providing broad policy guidance. And maybe it doesn't even have to be all the way to regulation, but strong policy guidance. And uh, we had some of that in in 2016. We were headed towards a a good, what I would call regulatory framework for how automated vehicles were going to be controlled at the federal level. Don't have to get down to every last detail about lines of code and this and that. We can set up the meta environment under which these have to be developed and tested to make sure we aren't putting uh, pedestrians and bicyclists and other motorists at risk by prematurely where you started this conversation prematurely going out there into live traffic and we 've kind of stopped you know we, we were getting close to having a good framework in place and, and we 're no closer than we were about two years ago at this point, and you know we 've seen possibly some of the consequences. Of that uh, playing out, so I would like to see us get back into the game a little bit at the federal level. Meanwhile, the states—many states have become very active. Michigan is one of those, obviously. In fact, it's probably a little bit of an advantage to us that the feds have gone kind of quiet. Meanwhile, Michigan is 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 doing very well, as is Arizona, California. Other states are setting up their own own regimes, um, but ultimately, consumers exist, and all. 50 states, even if we don't buy these vehicles. Abe hinted a little while ago that consumers need to want to be able to buy automated vehicles. It isn't clear to me that they are ever going to buy them. I think some of the initial um, clients will be more for transportation network companies, and they'll be in ride hailing, and they'll potentially be in car sharing and ride sharing, potentially, things along those lines, microtransit and trucks. We talked. A little bit about, but will they be purchased by end consumers like you and me and Kristen and Abe? Unclear. You know, I think on some high-end consumers will want one, and they'll be able to purchase them for that additional investment that they will. Call. They will be quite expensive initially, a low volume, um, at least ten thousand dollar add-on. I think it's more than that for early early adopters. Ten thousand ish a little bit after that and years before we get to higher volume where that price comes down a little bit. Um, So maybe consumers won't buy them. Maybe they'll be bought by the the networking companies, the transportation networking companies of of the future, and we're, we're not even quite sure who those are going to be. You know, if you look at Uber and Lyft, the most famous ones right now, they don't own vehicles, right? Their whole model is their drivers own the vehicles. So who does want to own those large fleets of networked vehicles? Is it going to be the rental car companies that we have today? Is that going to be their new business model? Is it going to be the car dealerships we have today? Is that something they want to branch out into? Is it some other service provider like a AAA or or somebody like that? I think it's going to be interesting over the next five years to see who emerges as the
1: place you go to get mobility when, when you need it. Well, that's going to be a great uh, topic of debate at uh, the management briefing seminars, I am sure. Yes,
3: my (laughs) colleagues, uh, Valerie Brueggemann and Adela Spalber, will be leading a number of different sessions on Tuesday and Wednesday at MBS. We'll cover automated vehicles all day on Monday. We'll be competing with Abe here. We'll be doing his manufacturing sessions in parallel. So you have to go back and forth. Fortunately, the rooms are not that far apart from each other. But between Monday and Wednesday all things mobility will more or
1: less be covered in one environment or the other. Mm -hmm. Abe, let's talk more about manufacturing then because one of the hot topics, as you all know, is what they call Industry 4.0. In fact, I've heard some refer to it as Industry X.0 because, you know, Right now it's 4.0, maybe next year it's 5.0, and then you,
2: right, yeah. it gets to
1: be a mess. Is that going to be part of uh, the discussion?
2: Yes, it's absolutely going to be part of I mean, how could we not and, and talk about it? And for the audience
1: that's yeah. not a, familiar yeah. with it, give yeah. us a thumbnail description well, of what
2: it's, it's about. Thumbnail, it's, it, it's a matter of uh, looking at the industry uh, as, uh, over the decades, how it has changed uh, from a very much of a manual mode industry way back when Henry Ford Uh, had the assembly line all the way to today's versions where we're extremely automated and there are fewer and fewer direct labor people in our uh, factories. Uh, So that's the direction that we're headed. And so Industry 4.0 is all about how do we uh, make better and better use of robots and uh, AI technology to be able to produce vehicles, and, uh, and, and there's a bit of a struggle with that because as we move towards that uh, and we reduce the human intervention, then uh, there are other difficulties crop because there sometimes humans can be a little bit more flexible than robots can, and so it's a matter of that transition. So that's the struggle we're going through, and, and that is another hot topic in manufacturing that we must address and which we'll, we will address at the management briefing seminars.
1: My understanding of Industry 4.0 is it's where the Internet of Things goes into the manufacturing plants, right, yeah. where you have literally all the machinery in the plant talking to each other, right, literally yeah. online in the yeah. cloud. The parts coming uh, down, down, the below. parts yeah.
2: coming down. Yeah, exactly. Yes.
1: And then so you can do what you you can use artificial intelligence to analyze all the data, and, and that's how you're figuring out how to make it more efficient. That's
2: right. Yeah, to be able to analyze the data to be not only efficient but also flexible, because as we look into Uh, As we go into more and more of the uh, automated vehicles and uh, ride sharing, there could be that the factories are going to have to learn to be even more flexible with what they offer in these vehicles because the needs are going to be different for different people. So uh, I think the flexibility that comes in with being able to uh, have all of these robots connected to one another and be able to produce different uh, variations of vehicles is going to be important. I'm sure the big corporations are heavily into
1: this, the General Motors, Fords, Toyotas, Daimlers, Absolutely, and the like. Yeah. What about smaller and mid-sized companies, or is this just way above their well, head?
2: Well, well, one of the advantages of the smaller companies which uh, have is that they don't have all of these legacy factories, which they actually can have the ability to be more flexible and be more innovative, because they don't have the investments that the General Motors and— the larger companies have. So I think that there's a advantage and disadvantage, pros and cons, if you will, by being smaller and a little bit more uh, flexible and nimble.
0: We have a study actually right now going on, um, studying the adoption of automation in small manufacturers. Uh, we'll be at MBS. We'll be gather, we're gathering data right now, and we hope to have some results for that for the, before the end of the year.
1: Kristen, you're also the labor expert. What do you, what
0: goes through your mind when Abe's talking about, yeah, we're gonna get more
1: efficient, we're not going to need as many people in the plants?
0: Well, you know, that's been going on for a long time in the auto industry. If you look at our employment trends, um, you know, that gets mixed up with trade too. Was it trade that killed the jobs or was it automation that killed the jobs? And it's a mixture of both and no one has really disentangled those two. Um, We do see a future with very, you know, fewer and fewer people in the plants. It's still
1: a lot? Or are you talking about just a handful?
0: No, still quite a few. I think it, we're, we're quite, quite a long the, ways from... The typical from, assembly
1: plant today is 2,000 people? 2,000,
0: 3,000, yeah. yeah.
1: So, where, where do you see that going down to?
0: I don't know. Okay. I, you know but I think that what the real um, challenge... I mean, you're merging cyber and physical systems, and there's a lot that can go wrong with this. And um, we're still in kind of an infancy of, of that, and there's a lot of... Uh, you know, security concerns and other um, aspects. And, you know, even the very highly automated factory out in California realized that sometimes you need some people. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: Over-reliance mm-hmm. on robots, okay. I believe, right. is the yeah. quote.
1: Okay. She's talking about Tesla. Oh,
3: yeah, that is oh. the name of the company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But I've got to believe that uh, this is going to be a big topic of discussion at the management briefing seminars. You typically get a good representation of people from the UAW who attend. We
0: do. Um, and, you know, they're looking at what are these trends and how is it going to affect the bargaining unit for the, for the union jobs. Um, we've already seen, you know, in the state of Michigan, we have more white-collar workers that work for GM, FCA, and Ford than we have hourly workers. And that used to
1: be exactly the opposite. And it the used opposite. to be exact mm-hmm.
0: opposite. Um, so you know, we, we're looking at even in, in our trade agreements, looking at how we're going to count some of that labor value content uh, in trade, like the R and D. How do you count that um, as part of embodiment of the physical good?
1: Mm. Very interesting. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, in software. How are we going to count software, Kristen? There's going to be well more and more value in that, particularly as AI and, and automation becomes a bigger part of the vehicle. So where was you mentioned the electronics are largely made in Asia, which is true. The software's made everywhere, twenty four hour production.
0: And it doesn't cycles. actually cross a customs border.
3: Yeah. And one copy, the cloud. Right. And one copy
0: costs as much as a million copies of it. I mean, it
1: can't be marginally
0: it can't priced. Be marginally priced. Yeah,
1: yeah. fascinating. Right. Speaking of software, then Richard, uh, could, going back to this right. whole discussion of regulations yep. of automated vehicles and the like, I think it was Mobileye, that uh, one of the high tech companies mm-hmm. in this area, uh, that had proposed it's come up with a series of tests that you can conduct of automated vehicles, where you literally take the system that runs your automated vehicle, plug it into their software system. It can run your car in the virtual world through a battery of tests yep. and give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Isn't this a, <laughs> a, a way to proceed in determining whether a company should be allowed to put its cars on the street or not? Well,
3: yeah. I mean, not, not addressing the mobile. I obviously wants to sell you that service, but there, there are any number of companies developing simulations that will allow you to test these things in a virtual environment before you go out onto a road. In fact, it would make a lot of sense to do a lot of putting your road environment into a simulation, test it repeatedly, uh, many, many, many times before you actually put it out there in automated mode. Um, that is exactly the kind of direction I, I was alluding to earlier when I said NHTSA was making some progress. They were going to set up standards along like that. What kind of edge scenarios do we need to test? What kind of other scenarios do we need to know are, um, are, are safe? To, to go out in the real world with, and you know whether it's using mobilized system or using Metamoto or using PreScan or using any number of different simulation tools that are that are out there. Not to mention you can write your own in Simulink if you're smart enough to do that uh, kind of thing. So. The, those capabilities are there. I would, I, I, would, I would like to see that. I would also like to see it done on the cybersecurity side where we don't have to test it as much in the, in the, quote, real world. We could test a lot of it virtually for that to know that we're secure uh, before we release these vehicles. With, without a human holding the steering wheel and having a foot on the brake pedal, I'd really like to make sure that we're 100% confident in the cybersecurity before we turn these things loose. That's a a big issue. You
0: bring up another issue too, is whether these vehicles be owned by fleets or by personal uh, individuals, whenever you're in a, you know, many of us fly in an automated vehicle, an airplane, and before you take off, there are a number of checks that they have to go through every time. The maintenance is meticulously recorded. We break our cars when we buy them. <laughs> we don't get all of the maintenance on a regularly scheduled basis. Nobody walks around their car before they get in to make sure everything is functioning and checklist. Um, so, you know, that's another thing. When you're in deployment, when we're in wider deployment, there's, there needs to be this checking of systems before they deploy.
1: Is one mm-hmm. of the problems mm-hmm. in, in those early stages of autonomy, automated vehicles the corporations that are developing it, or the companies. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm getting at is this. I trust, believe it or not, I trust the established car companies. They've got a track record. I trust mm-hmm. whether it's General Motors or Toyota or Daimler. Mm-hmm. I'm not so much sure I trust the, the Silicon Valley startups, not because they're necessarily untrustworthy, but they've never done this thing before. Two, two, they they two don't points have the on.
2: decades of experience or hundreds of mm-hmm. decades of experience if you combine the number of people that you have. And, and you see that with uh, what happened to uh, the company we mentioned earlier in their manufacturing where their startup, they had to back up a little bit and shut down for a while. Uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, the Detroit three, at least, and for certainly Toyota, Honda, Nissan, those type of company that very much uh, have that experience and be able to avoid a situation like that and know what level of automation to uh, go into and what reliability of automation that you need for these factories.
3: Deadpool's advocate for a second, though, I think Abe just hit upon the key advantage that the traditional auto companies have, and that comes from the manufacturing experience and the like but it's actually the Silicon Valley companies, and like them, they aren't all in Silicon Valley, obviously, right, they're in Pittsburgh and Washington and Waterloo and various other places. Um, But that, call it the software world, I guess is probably the right word for it. What they have the advantage on, and as software becomes a bigger part of the vehicle, it becomes a bigger advantage, is standard software development processes. I think it's why Waymo is, is ahead. In the uh, race to automation, they're the only ones right now that are way out there and using best practices for software development. So they aren't letting, well, let's see if this software works out in the real world. That doesn't happen at at, at Waymo. And uh, I, I, I think the... Detroit 3 and the other traditional auto companies could learn a lot from Silicon Valley in terms of developing the software, the AI, the cybersecurity side, and vice versa. The West Coast could learn a heck of a lot from the Midwest and the Great Lakes on some of the manufacturing rigor and the like. And, you know, they do work together from time to time. As much as we talk about it kind of as a versus situation, there's probably a lot more collaboration
1: than competition going on right now. How about uh, the cars themselves that come
2: off the line?
1: Are these going to wear out faster? And how does that impact manufacturing? Are you going to have to turn this over?
2: Right. Uh, One of the things that we uh, are focusing on, and uh, we all like our acronyms in the auto industry, is the ACES, which is the Automated, Connected, Electrical, and Shared. Although I got to uh, tell vehicles. you, some people call it yeah.
1: case connected, automated, shared, electric. <laughs> so same <laughs> letters just same, jumbled a just different jumbled way. Around. There's
2: probably yeah. three or four other ways you <laughs> could do that. That's right. Yeah. But on, and these vehicles, uh, as we see it, the uh, product design, the materials, and manufacturing, and all of those are uh, going to be more involved in making sure that they're, they're more durable. Because especially when it comes to sharing uh, vehicles, today's world, people put ten to 20, uh, 15, twelve thousand miles a year on their vehicles, it could very well be it could be 80 to 100,000 miles per year. And so durability and the material selection is going to be extremely important. So all of the, this whole landscape uh, is so exciting that it's changing and uh, it, it's definitely going to matter. Well,
0: uh, and that durability. brings up another thing is that if these vehicles are cycling through more quickly, so they're racking up 80,000 miles a year and maybe are taken out of service after one or two years. Um, against the, the existing fleet where the average vehicle is 12, 12 years old. So there's going to be a real divergence in the technology in these vehicles that are turning over much more quickly and the vehicles that people own that turn over much more slowly. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, look, there's going to be a lot to talk about at the management briefing oh, seminars. Yeah. We've right, only yeah. barely scratched the top yeah. of the surface. Right. So anybody in the industry who's uh, interested in attending, it's going to be in the, First week of August, thereabouts, in Traverse City. Check out the management briefing seminars. But Kristen, Richard, Abe, thank you much for sharing all this knowledge that you have. Thank you, Jonathan.
2: Thank you.